Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey, everyone. Season four of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. Very excited today, folks, to be talking with Dr. Rob Edinburgh, PhD, who's done some fascinating research at Bath University on nutrient exercise timing and the impacts on things like energy balance, metabolism, and insulin sensitivity. Rob graduated from the University of Bath with first-class honors in sport and exercise science, winning the David Wilkinson Prize along the way for the best physiology student. Rob is particularly interested in how exercise and nutrition can counteract the increasingly worldwide prevalence of chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes and obesity. Rob's also worked at the Peak Center for Human Performance in Ottawa, Canada as an exercise physiologist, where he led individualized consultations on exercise and diet, performed exercise tests, and ran strength and conditioning classes. Really fascinating discussion here with Rob on his research and the breakfast versus no breakfast debate, and of course, all the nuances that this topic brings. So I really, really think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Rob. Quick note before we start, the Peak online course will launch this fall. It's looking like a mid-October start, so if you're a strength coach out there, a nutritionist practitioner who wants to upgrade your performance nutrition skills and earn some CE credits along the way, then definitely Sign up for the pre-sale list over at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And be the first to hear when it drops and get a nice discount as well. Awesome. Let's do this season four, episode 15 with Dr. Rob Edinburgh. Rob, thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, no problem at all. Thank you for having me on. Well, listen, I'd love to start this conversation with uh, you sharing with folks a little bit more about your background and your journey into your current role. Um, sure, no problem. So um, my kind of career as a sport and exercise scientist started at the University of Bath, where I did my uh, undergraduate degree, um, finishing that in 2015. Um, during that process, uh, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to spend a year in Canada um, working as an exercise physiology nice. uh, physiologist at the uh, Peak Centre for Human Performance. Um, and then in my final year of the degree, I um, was also extremely lucky to um, to meet uh, Dr. Javier Gonzalez, and um, I know at the end of that year, I was offered a PhD with him, um, staying at the University of Bath, um, where I've spent the last four years um, researching exercise and meal timing um, for health, and uh, a focus of that work has been on um, um, sugar control, so blood sugar control, uh, and also energy balance. Um, I've been fortunate to work with some really excellent researchers, um, professors Dylan Thompson and James Betts, uh, Dr. Frances Kumanoff, Dr. J.P. Wallen, all at the University of Bath, um, as well as um, researchers in, in uh, Dr. Gareth Wallace at the University of Birmingham uh, and professors Kevin Tipton and Emma Stevenson. So I've been very, very lucky um, in my PhD experience um, to be involved with um some of these uh, researchers, and I've learned a lot and, and um, managed to produce some research, which uh, I think we're going to delve into today. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. And it, um, you know, such a 
interesting topic and something that between athletes and general public, everybody is, is interested in and talking about and wondering the effects of. And of course, today with the general population obviously struggling with their health and metabolic health, weight gain, obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all these types of things. And so you know, maybe a nice place to start is for you to give us a little recap on you know, energy balance and how it maybe relates to metabolic health to set up our discussion around some of the work that you've done. Yeah, I, uh, fantastic. I think it's a really great um, point to start. And I know some of your listeners will probably be quite familiar with this already. And I can, um, I know my supervisor, Dr. Javier Gonzalez, also talked about this in one of your earlier um, podcasts. Yes. But it's always worth recapping um, 100%. some of the basics. Yeah. So body weight over time um, is primarily dictated by energy balance. And um, energy balance is uh, in some ways, it's quite simple. It's it's the uh, energy that we consume or we eat, um, which we call energy intake, um, and it's uh, energy uh, compared to the energy um, that you expend. And you can think of this a, as a weighing scale, if you like, or, or two sides of a of a scale. Um, energy intake would be the the food and drinks that we eat. Um, so in, in the diet, that's normally carbohydrates, fats, and protein, and also alcohol. And the slight caveat to that is you have metabolizable energy, which is the energy um, that we um, actually absorb from that food Mm -hmm. um, and and the energy um, because we excrete a a very small amount of energy, but typically only three to five percent. Energy expenditure on the other side, um, there's three main components. Um, There's resting metabolic rate, which is the energy that we uh, invest to stay alive. So you've got basic cellular functions. Um, core body temperature um, you've got diet induced thermogenesis which is the energy that we invest to metabolize uh, store or oxidize the food that we eat um, one example of that is um, um, the energy uh, from from protein so um, quite a lot of energy from, from protein is wasted through heat loss um, which is sometimes why you feel quite hot after eating um, especially a, a, a very protein well, heavy meat <laughs> or, or a big barbecue on a sunny yeah, day like today um, and then uh, the, the last component, which is something I've been quite interested in, is physical activity. Um, and that can be exercise, um, but also activities such as fidgeting, walking to the shops. Um, the really complicated thing um, is that these two factors are also interlinked. So your energy intake can affect your expenditure and vice versa. And we can probably discuss some examples relating to breakfast um, later on. Um, but as yeah, as researchers, we're often interested in capturing as much of information of these different components as we can. I mean, it's a fascinating topic because, as you mentioned, it's on, when we look at it from thirty thousand feet, we say this is quite simple. It's energy in versus energy out. We're trying to lose yeah. weight. We simply need to take in less than we're expending. And yet, when we drill down deeper, there's all of these nuances that are impacting both sides of those equations, and as you mentioned, impacting one another. Um, so maybe you can segue into discussing the work you did around the fasted versus fed uh, exercise and how that impacted things like energy balance. Yeah, um, so we know that for both energy balance and metabolic health, so metabolic health is, is well, if we quickly just have a think about that um, and what, what we mean by metabolic health, um, and it's a term that's used to describe the ability of the body to um, maintain homeostasis of uh, various substrates. So it's quite a broad term, um, and this can be from a whole body to a molecular level. Um, 
the particular focus of my work was on blood sugar control. Um, and I looked at this at a whole body level, but also in uh, skeletal muscle. And we can talk about some of that uh, research later on. Um, but as you kind of mentioned right at the very start, it, it, it's important to remember that metabolic health is also very closely related to energy balance. So, for example, during weight loss, um, you'd expect many markers of metabolic health, such as your blood sugar control or your um, uh, fat um, profile in blood to also improve with weight loss. So these two things are very closely interlinked. Um, yeah, I mean, it blew me away when I was chatting with uh, Nicola Guest, Dr. Nicola Guest, a few uh, maybe a year and a bit ago around type 2 diabetes and how you know 90% of, of reversal is just due to weight loss. And so it's a tremendous impact, isn't it? Yeah, and, and we see this time and time again, and there's been some nice research at, at Bath that, that also demonstrates um, that that um, relationship between energy balance and um, and health. Um, my research specifically, which is kind of where we, we were going with this, um, mm -hmm. we know that for both energy balance and our health, um, exercise plays a role. Um, it's widely recommended as a tool for, for people looking to manage their weight, uh, and to improve their health. Um, we also know that exercise, um, if you like dose, or the amount of exercise you do, and that's taken into account duration, intensity, frequency, that can be a primary determinant of the magnitude of many health responses to exercise training. So if you do more, um, you're, you're likely to see greater improvements. But the problem we see today is that many people actually fail to achieve current physical activity guidelines. And quite often um, they, they say this is due to a lack of time. Yeah, um, those, those 30 minutes, three to five times a week, right? We're getting into the yeah. If, the if we look at that. And people say, well, geez, that's, that's difficult to carve out if you're busy with work or kids or whatnot, right? Most, most as you mentioned, fail to achieve that, don't they? Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll talk about the training study that I uh, ran a bit later on, but a lot of my participants were from Bath and, and typically they, they were um, um, parents and they had young kids and a job and they, they were trying to use the training study as well to kind of kickstart um, a bit more exercise for them and, and to improve their health. But it was that message. We haven't got time because we have kids and we have... Um, we have other commitments, um, which is where we, we were going. So any strategies to maximize the benefits of any exercise that is performed um, are likely to be really important. And I mean, the, the other kind of justification for this is there is evidence of um, some variability between people to the same exercise training for some health outcomes. Um, and quite often this variability between people can also be greater than that of a control group which suggests that it's actually true into individual variability. Um, and yeah, we had some really interesting conversations with, with uh, my supervisor. Um, and like, we know that we, we, we're quite good at studying nutrition and exercise, but at times maybe we can uh, integrate these two disciplines um, uh, a little bit more, um, especially when it comes to, it comes to health. And um, yeah, that, that's I mean, the kind of setup for what, why we went into the, the research we I was, did. I was going to say, I mean, that's what a, the perfect cohort to be working with. I mean, people who are time pressed and who really do want to have a, you know, be able to un, uncover some of those potential marginal gains or significant gains from being able to structure food or exercise at different times. And of course, even, you know, the psychological effect of actually seeing more of a, of a shift in, in some of these markers or body weight for a lot of people, they haven't seen that in a while. So yeah, curious to see what you guys uh, found in the study. 
Yeah, that's exactly spot on. If you if you're going to do some exercise, why not? If if there's a way you can get, a, I like the term "bigger bang for your buck." It's absolutely it's that, that's that's kind of what we were we were looking into. Yeah, I mean, most people are used to doing a lot and getting very little results, so it's definitely appealing if they can do smaller amounts and get a bigger uh, yield or bigger benefit in terms of yeah. health and body composition. Yeah, and especially when people are, are limited in the amount of exercise they, they, they feel they can do, then um, why not put in little places, uh, little little tactics to try and maximize those benefits? 100%. Can you walk us through how that was set up and, and what you guys uh, uncovered? Yeah, for, for sure. So I'm going to talk about a few studies um, that I completed throughout my PhD. And um, the, the first kind of study of my PhD was um, some mechanistic work. We were looking at metabolism during exercise. Um, but my supervisor, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, talked about that in, in season two of your podcast. So I'm not going to touch on that too much today. Instead, I'm going to talk about two other studies. One was an acute um, short-term study over a period of 24 hours um, that, that was primarily focused on energy balance. And we published that in the Journal of Nutrition. And then there was a longer term exercise training study, which took up the, the majority of time of my PhD. Um, we published that one in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism um, last year. Um, and then at, at the very end, we'll, uh, we, we can have a, a chat about uh, a slightly different study that's, that was also um, quite fun and, and, and interesting to do with uh, energy balance as well. Yeah, teaser, maximal eating study. So make sure you <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah, definitely a fun one when we all eat in barbecues. There you go. Um, so yeah, um, I guess we can uh, maybe just delve into that um, acute study first uh, around energy balance if you'd like. Perfect. Um, so yeah, our, the acute study, um, we were basically looking at the effects of skipping breakfast and performing exercise um, compared to eating breakfast and doing the same exercise on the different components of energy balance that I talked about earlier. Um, so why were we interested in this? Um, but quite a lot of people would, would, would say they are a breakfast consumer, but there's lots of myths around this. Um, is, is eating breakfast good for your health? Is it bad? Um, so for example, if you, if you survey people and measure their weight, if you're a breakfast consumer, you're typically less likely to be overweight. Um, but you cannot necessarily say that's causal from, mm. from those observation studies. Um, and, and there can be lots of different compartment variables. So the backdrop was a study completed by Professor James Betts at the University of Bath, um, where he uh, randomized people to either eat breakfast or not. And he looked at different markers of energy balance. Um, and what he showed in a nutshell was that the group that ate breakfast increased their physical activity across the day and particularly in the morning. So the participants that skipped breakfast, they didn't seem to compensate by eating more later in the day. But there did seem to be a reduction in energy expenditure, which would so if you were saying, well, well, I'll um, skip breakfast to lose weight. Um, this uh, reduction in their energy expenditure, if we think back to those weigh-in scales, it would be eating into that energy deficit that they've created. Yeah, it's fascinating how people wouldn't necessarily assume that, and obviously just think, well, listen, I'm going to eat less total calories because I'm going to skip breakfast and therefore I'm going to be able to achieve this outcome that I'm after. But just as you mentioned, these things are interrelated and all of a sudden now energy expenditure goes down and and, the, and our clients are still stuck in that same same situation. 
Yeah, and and it really you've hit the nail on the head there because this this reduction in energy expenditure it wasn't um, it, it was through non-exercise activity, so things like fidgeting. Um, and perhaps you, you're you're less likely to 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 walk to the shops. Maybe those con, uh, sub, maybe subconscious movements or decisions you don't really think about. That's where these uh, reductions in uh, energy expenditure were coming from. So how did we, me, me and uh, Javier talked about this and we decided it'd be interesting to have an exercise condition in there. So this is what we set up in our study. We, we recruited 12 um, healthy in this study young men. Uh, they had a body mass index of 23 and they completed three trials in a randomized order. Um, so in one trial, they arrived at our lab and we fed them a breakfast. It was a porridge breakfast and um, they simply remained at rest. So that was our control trial. Mm-hmm. In a second trial, they ate the same breakfast, but then they performed a bout of cycling exercise. And it was one hour at 50% uh, peak power output. And then in a third trial, they actually skipped the breakfast, but still performed exercise. Two hours later, um, we fed them a pasta meal for lunch. Um, and then we provided them with a food package to eat outside of the lab. And uh, um, all the meals they were instructed, they were allowed to eat as much as they would like um, um, uh, from the lunch in the lab and, and from the food package. And we measured what, what was left over. And then we also measured their energy expenditure from expired gas samples in the lab. And then uh, we looked at a combined heart rate accelerometry uh, outside of the lab. So we could measure energy intake and energy expenditure over 24 hours. Terrific. Um, yeah, and uh, what, we, what we showed was that uh, energy balance over 24 hours was unsurprisingly most positive in the rest condition. Um, the men were in an energy balanced state, so energy intake pretty much equaling energy expenditure in our breakfast and exercise trial. Mm-hmm. And in the skipping breakfast and exercise trial, the energy balance was uh, minus 400 calories. So they were in an energy deficit. So that kind of is to be expected, given that they were in that energy deficit from breakfast. But the key message from that study was that due to the incomplete compensation for for skipping breakfast before exercise, this strategy might create the conditions for greater losses in body mass um, compared to eating breakfast um, before exercise. So these men didn't seem to compensate for missing the breakfast um, by either eating more or or doing less activity um, over this 24 hour period. Such an important, uh, I mean, fascinating findings and so important from a practical standpoint, because this is a question that a lot of the general public wrestle with around that idea of waking up and getting some exercise in and should I eat and shouldn't I eat? Um, so, so really, um, you know, really practical uh, and insightful findings. Yeah, I, the one caveat I, w- I, w- I would make to that is that it's important to remember with any acute studies like this that any changes in energy balance over a, a short period do need to persist over a prolonged period of time for changes in body mass. Mm-hmm. Um, so for uh, we know that ad- adjustments in energy intake to um, energy deficits, energy deficits from exercise are thought to be regulated over uh, quite a long period. So to build on our work, what we now need is further um, research to investigate changes in energy balance and body mass with regular exercise training and, and skipping breakfast versus eating breakfast. Um, just to build on this and to see if this, um, you, can, you can think of our study as maybe the, 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 the first step um, 
in answering that question. And we now need a training study um, to look at changes in body mass um, with skipping breakfast um, compared to eating breakfast and doing exercise. And it would really build on it as well, develop that study I talked about earlier from Professor James Betts around um, eating or, or skipping breakfast at rest. And context is so important in this whole conversation, isn't it, Rob, in terms of the, the fitness levels of the individuals, or as you mentioned, you know, the exercise intensity that they're, they're training at, correct? Yeah, 100%. So, uh, and, and I think that is important to, to remember throughout, and I was going to link it in later as well, is that um, the research we, we, we talk about, um, especially with the training study, is moderate intensity endurance type exercise. So we're talking about and maybe going for a run or going for a cycling in, in, in this study. Um, and, and especially when we come on to talk about the training study and some of the adaptations there and whether eating breakfast or not beforehand is um, appropriate, um, then I think definitely considering the, um, the, the type of exercise that's being performed, what your individual goals are, whether you're trying to improve your performance, whether you're trying to lose weight, uh, or improve your health all of these factors um, need to be considered and I think quite often we we look for a, a, a black and white one option fits every scenario answer um, clients, the clients definitely look for that answer for sure yeah, <laughs> like, and, just tell me the right answer you're like well it's just all gray it's not, yeah, it's not black or that's white science for you yeah um, yeah now, Rob, can we segue into talking about how exercise impacts, you know, insulin sensitivity, both, you know, peripherally and, um, you know, postprandially as well? Yeah, 100%. And um, this is much more linked into our, our training study here. Mm -hmm. So I'll introduce the training study. What I wanted to do was give you a, because um, uh, we also looked at energy balance in, in the training study. So I'll give you a um, quick overview of those findings while we're still, still talking about energy balance. Awesome. And then um, jump into the uh, the metabolic health and uh, and blood sugar control side of things. Um, so after the acute study that we did, um, we did an exercise training study, and um, we we recruited this time overweight or obese humans, and they were with me for six weeks um, at a time. And and this study took the majority of of my PhD, and it was about two years to complete. And um, so it was a big project. Yeah. Um, and and to, uh, we, we actually got through 30, um, 30 men. Um, they were allocated to either a no exercise group, a breakfast before exercise group, or a breakfast after exercise group for a six-week study. Um, the exercise groups completed 50 minutes of cycling, uh, moderate intensity, three times a week. And they ate the same breakfast either before or after they did the exercise. So an important point here is uh, we're now talking not about breakfast skipping, but about breakfast timing, um, which is a, another really interesting question. And we thought this was in a um, study with this population in terms of we were trying to make this um, quite a uh, applicable study. We thought this change in breakfast timing um, uh, w would be the more interesting question. Mm -hmm. And we took lots of measures relating to their body weight, markers of body composition, um, but as you mentioned, we also um, completed something called an oral glucose tolerance test, which is where we gave the participants a sugary drink, which is about equivalent, maybe two cans of Coke. And then we look at their blood sugar response and their blood insulin response to this um, kind of like a challenge, a dietary challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we also took muscle samples um, from the exercise muscle and we worked with 
researchers um, uh, in Poland and University College London, um, as well as uh, uh, the University of Bath to look at different measures. And while we're kind of giving you an overview of the study, we, we also looked at acute fuel use during exercise, um, working closely with um, a fantastic team of researchers at the University of Birmingham um, under the supervision of um, Dr. Gareth Wallace. So I'll loop back and discuss all of that in a moment, but just quickly kind of recap what we found in terms of energy balance. So remember, this is now uh, breakfast timing rather than skipping breakfast. Yep. Um, and we knew going into that study that regularly exercising the fasted state and uh, consuming breakfast after the exercise um, didn't seem to increase um, losses in body or fat mass over four to six weeks um, if you consume the same food um, uh, after exercise. So there is some conflict in the literature, um, but quite inconsistent and um, uh, especially when, when it when it comes to meal timing and what we showed in our study was that performing exercise as you'd expect it increased average daily physical activity energy expenditure compared to the control group but there were no differences in self-reported energy intake um, objectively measured energy expenditure nor changes in body mass waist to hip ratio um, or any of these measures that we made between the two exercise groups so this suggests that exercising before versus after breakfast might not create the conditions for greater losses in body mass if you if the same breakfast is consumed post-exercise. And on balance, this is what the literature suggests. For changes in body weight, um, exercise can be a really useful tool. But if we're just talking about meal timing around exercise, that doesn't seem to matter so much. But skipping breakfast and doing exercise, so that acute study, may be a useful strategy because you've created that negative energy balance and, and performing that exercise there might help you to defend that negative energy balance but there are more questions to answer on that front still i mean it's it's such a great point around that idea of defending that energy balance because as you mentioned before if people who don't eat breakfast typically um, aren't the fitter and leaner cohorts than the people who typically ate breakfast as you mentioned earlier um, but if we have this scenario where we fast and then exercise you know as you saw in your group there, we're not seeing this, you know, rebound overconsumption of, of food throughout the day. Now, this is obviously can vary between individuals. I think what you mentioned there when you, I think a lot of trainers or doctors listening in or practitioners, you know, that idea of clients kind of struggling with, should I eat before, should I eat after? And yet we see if it's the same meal, it's not really going to have an effect one way or the other. And so it's, it's not a question that people should be losing sleep over in terms of that timing issue, correct? Not for energy balance, but there's some quite interesting study, uh, findings that we, we, we have for, um, for, for health. And it's kind of how you, you started this um, section of the talk. And, and perhaps it's a good point to, to delve into that, what, what we found in terms of um, some of these health outcomes. Yeah, and how these sub different substrates are being utilized. Perfect. Let's do that. Yeah. So um, before we get into the, the, the kind of long-term adaptations, there is some really nice research around um um, meal or nutrient exercise interactions for health but before um, kind of in the over the last year these studies were mostly uh, related to a single exercise session and there's been some nice reviews in the area and I can I'm happy to provide the links to those um, to the listeners if, if that's of interest and we know that um, uh, meal exercise interactions can influence acute metabolic responses to exercise so we've known this for a long time. An example is for people with and without type 2 diabetes, 
the blood glucose response to a single meal can be lowered to a greater extent if you perform your exercise after compared to before the meal. And this is basically to do with increased uh, oxidation or burning of the carbohydrates that you've eaten. So if you look at that acute um, studies, it could be suggested that you should perform moderate intensity activity um, between 30 to 120 minutes after eating carbohydrate rich meals to help lower blood glucose um, peaks from that meal. So in theory, this might reduce cardiovascular disease risk um, if you repeated that stimulus after every single meal that was consumed. But caution should be taken when extrapolating any acute um, findings to longer term changes in health, especially when considering um, that the window over which exercise can affect blood sugar control can be up to 48 hours. So many, many post-exercise meals, not just a sing single one. For sure. I mean, it's an interesting area because when you look at like offensive linemen or defensive linemen in American football or potentially similar positions in rugby, you get athletes who are overweight, but due to the amount of exercise, their metabolic profiles look great whilst they're playing. And then, you know, because they're having that exercise and training repeatedly, as you just mentioned there throughout the day, and then all of a sudden upon retirement, when that activity goes down and those metabolic profiles shift, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's another great example of, um, uh, the importance of exercise and, and uh, Dr. J.P. Wallen at University of Bath. Again, I'm kind of highlighting a lot of University of Bath. It's not, yeah, not all you guys got a great under, group over there. So <laughs> I guess some of some of the, the talks we the, the the talks we have and it is kind of linked into a lot of the work we've been doing. But he's done some work showing the power of exercise in that effect as well. And in protecting in his study, it was against a big overfeed and um, how, how exercise can protect some metabolic health even when you're in a positive energy balance. Um, performing exercise can can stop some of the negative changes happening um, at a molecular level. So yeah, it, again, it shows the importance of being active and doing some exercise. Hundred percent. So coming jumping back in, that, yep. that's the acute, acute acute findings, especially relating to blood blood sugar control. But when we look at longer term studies, the picture isn't the same. So that might suggest you should do um, your exercise after a carbohydrate rich meal or some physical activity. But um, there was a study by uh, Karen Van Proyen. It was in the Journal of Physiology in 2010. Um, it's a really nice study, and it was kind of a, a pivotal study for setting up some of the work that we did. And in their study, healthy men um, consumed a uh, high-calorie, uh, fat-rich diet. So it was they were eating 30% um, above their normal, and uh, I wouldn't call it high fat, but it was 50% um, of energy was coming from fat. Mm -hmm. And then they exercised for 300 minutes a week. So quite high exercise volume for six weeks. And they either had a carbohydrate rich breakfast before and then one gram per kilogram of body weight carbohydrate during exercise or they exercised fasted and then they had the breakfast and additional carbohydrate after exercise. They had a control group and relative to that control group, the blood sugar response to a sugary drink. So the same test that I talked about earlier that decreased when exercise was performed in the fasted state, but not in the carbohydrate fed state. And they also estimated insulin sensitivity and they showed that also improved only if exercise was performed in the fasted state. So some really nice um, research there. It was, a, it was a kind of a, a landmark study in this area and um, showed that there might be some metabolic benefits of doing exercise in the fasted state. Um, particularly when folks who are struggling with some of these metabolic conditions 
Yeah, so well, that study was in healthy people, which is yeah. is why we wanted to kind of build on this a little bit more. Amazing when we see it even in healthy people, right? Yeah, and and um, yeah, it, and, and and quite high exercise volumes there. The caveat was um, um, when exercising for health reasons and consuming large doses of carbohydrate as those in that study. So again, it was. Um, carbohydrate-rich breakfast, and then also the one gram per kilogram during. It's not typical, whereas many people might exercise after having a carbohydrate-based breakfast. Uh, lots of breakfasts in developed countries are carbohydrate-based, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not necessarily um, also consuming carbohydrates during. Um, and then, as you mentioned, that study is in healthy people, but feeding and fasting can exert um, different responses in people who are overweight compared to lean. Um, and there's been studies that have shown that um, uh, just uh, fasting in the morning c- compared to consuming breakfast um, changes gene expression and some genes involved in uh, in fat turnover in the fat tissue or adipose tissue in lean people, but not hum- uh, not in uh, overweight or obese humans. So it's an example where we can't always extrapolate um, what's been shown in, in healthy people to people who are overweight. Mm-hmm. So in our study... Um, we were um, we we asked the participants to perform exercise before breakfast, and uh, our breakfast uh, was a carbohydrate drink. And I'll mention why we we chose a drink in a in a second. And we showed that if you exercise before breakfast, so for fasted, um, our measure of insulin sensitivity was increased relative to when the same exercise was performed after breakfast. So the same pattern, performing exercise in the fasted state led to um, greater benefits for for insulin sensitivity and in our study the carbohydrate dose was lower it was much more representative of of breakfast uh, consumed in developed countries in terms of the dosage and there was no extra carbohydrate during exercise and uh, the six-week intervention as i mentioned earlier it was um, 50 minute sessions uh, three times a week so it adhered to current physical activity guidelines um, uh, and and we were recruiting the overweight or or, or obese um, cohort Terrific. Yeah, it was um, a very uh, exciting finding, and it was nice to um, to to see that it kind of matched on onto some of that uh, earlier findings. Um, and it kind of got us thinking about why this might occur, and, and um, I think that's always important in in sciences to kind of um, delve into the mechanisms, and that's what we we wanted to do with this study, which is why we took those muscle samples. Um, so I can tap into a little bit of that if you'd like. Absolutely, yeah. Let's dive into that. Um, so I think to understand some some of the uh, the differences between exercise and the fasted or or, or the carbohydrate fed state, it's important it's important to um, to first uh, think just about adaptations to exercise more generally. So apologies if this is um, recapping some of the basics for your listeners, but I think it's always useful to. Um, to cover those basics before we talk about more specifics. hundred percent. So um, the beneficial effects of exercise um, for, for health um, can be attributed to two main effects. So firstly, exercise um, increases our energy expenditure and acts as a, a potent acute stimulus for increasing uh, muscle glucose and fat uptake. And that's basically to satisfy the energy demands of the exercise. Um, so if we think of, of, of blood sugar control, each bout of exercise activates pathways in exercising muscle, which um, 
move the glucose transporter, which is a protein called GLUT4, to the plasma membrane to basically allow sugar to move um, from the blood into the muscle. And this is largely due to the activation of a, a really important protein called AMP activated protein kinase, AMPK. Mm-hmm. And this triggers some downstream proteins uh, important in that cascade. And um, so we have this acute effect. Um, but secondly, uh, regular exercise not only increases the amount of time that we spend in this acute phase, but it also uh, induces some long-term adaptations across uh, many tissues that, that are also important for, for metabolic health. Um, one example is um, each bout of exercise um, produces a short burst in gene expression or, of different key proteins, um, one of which is, is a protein called PGC1-alpha. And um, with subsequent bouts of exercise, um, if you keep the intensity the same, the, the, um, the magnitude of these bursts in gene expression might be diminished, but you get a buildup in the protein content of, of different proteins, uh, for example, PGC1-alpha. And um, what will happen then is that will trigger some, some downstream adaptations, for example, changes in protein content of, of mitochondrial proteins. And I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but of the molecular uh, mechanisms that are important in exercise adaptation, one of the really key proteins is AMPK, uh, which is, is this fuel-sensing enzyme. Yeah, I was going to say it's um, important for listeners to sort of understand that idea of, of being a, a sensor and being able to, you know, the body's way of being able to appreciate whether there's additional fuels on board or not and that, you know, these, these get released and then from there we're getting changes in terms of, um, you know, what fuels are going to be uh, oxidized uh, for a fuel source, right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's one of the things that actually I love about physiology and, and why I'm kind of, I got involved with studying and researching it. It's just how, uh, intri- and the more you study, the more you realize that the human body is very, very intricate and it has all these systems in place. Uh, for example, if we talk about AMPK, um, so uh, it's, a, it's a fuel sensing enzyme um, it alters metabolism during and post exercise. For example, it increases um muscle uh, glucose or sugar uptake and glycogen synthesis by by activation of a protein called AS160 and also increases lipid oxidation by a different protein called ACC. So all these different pathways going on and you have different proteins triggering different pathways and uh, and in a manner that's kind of uh, sensitive to um, in, in our conversation, the nutrient status as well with endurance type exercise, which again, this is what we're talking about here, running on cycling, you're always going to be burning a mixture of carbohydrates and fat as a fuel. Um, and since at least 1920, there was a nice study by Croft and Linhard with the, the first authors in 1920. We have known that meal timing. So when you eat in relation to exercise alters metabolism, um, with running a cycling, um, exercise, in the fasted state, there is an increase in fat oxidation and a decrease in carbohydrate oxidation. Um, so when we eat breakfast prior to exercise, um, you get this increase in carbohydrate oxidation, and that's coming from uh, an increase in blood glucose, but also muscle glycogen. Um, some studies have shown a muscle glycogen sparing effect with carbohydrate ingestion before and during exercise, but with modest doses of carbohydrate, which is what we're talking about here, that doesn't always seem to be the case. And so for clarity, when I'm talking here, I'm mainly referring to endurance type exercise at around about 40 to 60 percent VO2 max, because as you increase the intensity of exercise beyond that um, into what we would start talking high intensity exercise, 
you start to uh, increasingly utilize carbohydrate uh, as the fuel, irrespective of whether the exercise is in the fed or fasted state. And again, some great researchers in this area, Bergman and Brooks, um, had a study, I think it was in the Journal of Applied Physiology, um, that, that demonstrated that really nicely. Yeah, I mean, this is such a fascinating area because, again, this idea of um, you know fitness level is one that's, you know, we clients, oftentimes we always want to think of ourselves as athletes. And, of course, elite athletes are a, a different level than even recreational elite athletes. And when we talk about the fuels that need to go into whether it's training nutrition or racing nutrition, it's it's it can be troublesome for recreational clients because they want to be fueling with, let's say, more carbohydrate um, to be able to elicit some of these gains. Yet, you know, if we talk about body composition, they're not seeing some of these, you know, reductions in, in body weight or even improvements in some of the metabolic profiles there. Um, so can you, can you touch on your experience with, you know, um, working on the elite side, working with the general population? You know, are there some general recommendations or, or you know, heuristics that you might give folks who are, you know, trying to lose 20 or 30 pounds versus those who are pushing more at the elite level and need to really fuel those, those training sessions. Yeah. I, th I think you kind of hit the nail on the head right at the very start when you said context is key and that, and that's what we're talking about um, here. Um, so you, I think the two um, paradigms are, are, are very different. Um, so for, for weight loss and for improvements in health, I think um, we, we kind of touch it at the very start that energy balance is very important. Um, and um, there's some nice work, um, I think, done by Susan Jeb has looked at different, um, for example, different um, diets. Um, so low carbohydrate, high carbohydrate, low fat. And the key seems to be energy balance. Um, so if you can um, maintain a diet and, uh, and maintain an energy deficit, um, uh, weight loss will, will, will come in the long term and, uh, and improvements in health will also come. Um, in terms of uh, performance, I, I mentioned I'd, I'd done some work at, at the Peak Center for Human Performance mm -hmm. in Canada. So I worked a little bit with, um, in that context, uh, it was with uh, aspiring ice hockey athletes, um, but also some in endurance athletes. And again, I, I think it's context. So if we're talking about long distance or, or high intensity uh, performance, then certainly your fueling um, would, would be different to if you're going out for a, a 30 to 40 minute jog and, and your aim is just to recreationally run or cycle to improve your health. And there I think we can, we can um, start thinking about the, uh, the demands of each session, which I think is the key really to knowing uh, and having an awareness of if your session is going to be uh, greater than two hours, uh, you might start seeing muscle glycogen depletion. So it's important to think about carbohydrate fueling. If the session is going to be high intensity, um, again, you might want to think about some carbohydrate fueling. Um, but if, if you're just going for a run or a cycle and, and you're trying to improve your health, then um, glycogen depletion, a moderate intensity uh, exercise, uh, where you might get muscle glycogen depletion leading to fatigue, um, that's not going to happen for a couple of hours. So your your body can um, perform uh, in this moderate intensity zone um, in the fasted state. So, um, and um, I'll kind of touch in, in, in a second here, you might get some uh, enhanced adaptations from performing that session in, in a fasted state. Yeah, talk to us a bit about how those uh, intramuscular triglycerides start to impact the story around, you know, what substrates we're going to utilize during exercise. 
Yeah, so before before I jump into um, intramuscular triglycerides, if we, if we link back to um, some of those key energy sensing proteins, mm-hmm. um, and these were some of the things that we measured um, in our muscle samples from the training study. So we know that AMPK and PGC1 alpha, uh, some of those key ones I talked about earlier, they're nutrient sensitive, um, and they've they're, they're involved in different adaptations, so mitochondrial adaptations, proteins involved in. A glucose or sugar transport into muscles such as GLUT4, which is that main uh, glucose transport protein. And in our study, we observed great increases in the protein levels of AMPK and PGC1-alpha in muscle with exercise before versus after breakfast. Um, so skeletal muscle AMPK, it can be activated by high fatty acid availability um, as well as muscle glycogen availability. So some of the, the work that came before our study had shown quite nicely that when you exercise with low muscle glycogen, you can uh, increase the responses of some of these proteins such as AMBK. So as I mentioned, our, our exercise training study was con- conducted in collaboration with researchers, including uh, Dr. Gareth Wallace, and we looked at muscle glycogen as well as intramuscular triglyceride use with a single bout of fasted fed exercise. And we didn't observe any difference in muscle glycogen utilization with exercise before versus after breakfast. So we think the increases in, in GLUT4 will probably be coming from increases in, in fatty acid availability and oxidation leading to increases in, in skeletal muscle AMPK. Um, we also looked at the um, phospholipid composition of skeletal muscles. The, these are, uh, and this was uh, done with, with researchers in Poland. Um, it's the, the fatty acid composition of muscle membranes, and this has been important for, for, for health and, and insulin sensitivity. Um, and we showed greater remodeling uh, or beneficial remodeling of this um, membrane with exercise before breakfast. And then you mentioned as well about IMTG. Um, and there's a, a nice body of evidence that, that, that's gone, gone before us that suggests that turnover of fat stores uh, might be beneficial for health. Um, so that's the turnover of fat stores from our fat tissue, but also uh, regular utilization of um, the fat stored in muscle, so intramuscular triglycerides. And this has been associated with improved insulin sensitivity. And in our study, because we collaborated with those um, researchers at the University of Birmingham, we, sh- we were able to show that eating breakfast before versus after breakfast, uh, exercise, sorry, say, um, doing your exercise in the fasted state, um, uh, you, you get increased uh, intramuscular triglyceride utilization in type 1 and type 2 fibers of these overweight men. So overall, the mechanisms seem to point towards increased fat use with exercise in the faster state being important for these changes in the health of muscle. Uh, key proteins such as AMPK and GLUT4 being upregulated, changes to the fat composition of muscle membranes, uh, and as you mentioned there, an increased turnover of the fat stores themselves. And a really nice element of our study was that we um, we measured um, um, expired air samples during every single exercise training study uh, session. Um, so we, we, we collected something called Douglas bags and we looked at the composition of those bags uh, and we were able to work out energy expenditure and carbohydrate and fat use during every single session. And what we found is there was a correlation between um, the men who burned the most fat during the exercise training sessions and uh, the the change in our estimate of insulin sensitivity. So it, it again Tremendous. supports that idea that yeah, that there's still a lot more mechanistic work to be done. It's a really exciting area, but 
the evidence from our study certainly points towards um, the, the burning more fat during exercise um, may uh, hold the benefit to unlocking some of these, um, these, these health benefits. Well, it's such compelling work when we think about the amount of people who pursue you know, endurance goals for better health, running a half marathon, running a marathon. And unfortunately, the amount of people who, despite ramping up their exercise expenditure tremendously, you know, don't lose all that much weight over the course of their two, three, four, five months of preparation. And, you know, this is where this, you know, the fueling strategies become so important. And to be able to see that, you know, particularly if they need to be doing more aerobic work and spending 80% of their time with a truly aerobic sessions, you know, being able to do that first thing in the morning, you know, without having to, um, you know, have any fuel on board is, is not only convenient, but as you're alluding to with all your, and you've proven when your research is a, is a great way to start improving that metabolic profile. Yeah. And, and, um, although some of the, the research we've been doing is, um, quite new in, in terms of looking at this for health, there's a, a, and it's important to acknowledge there's been a lot of great research already done in, in, in this area. Um, uh, Louise Burke, John Hawley have done mm -hmm. work, Catherine de Bock, I mentioned Karen Van Proyen's study, Mm -hmm. James Morton, they've all done great work in this area and um, typically looking at um, this from uh, kind of adaptations to exercise, typically with high exercise volumes, often with a performance outcome yes. um, rather than looking at it from health. So um, there was a lot of nice work and, and, and some of those studies also point to that there might be some enhanced adaptations to performing exercise in the fasted state, um, looking at proteins such as AMPK, some of the mitochondrial proteins being upregulated. Um, whether that always translates into um, um, increases in performance, um, the evidence is, is a little more unclear. We definitely see some enhanced adaptations. Doesn't always translate in, in, into improved performance, which is another thing to acknowledge here. Um, is that um, it, you need that complete picture. You need the adaptations and, and then the, the final outcome. Absolutely. But yeah. I, and the performance end, obviously that, yeah, that training nutrition. And as you mentioned before, sort of what the demands are of the session and, and being able to then strategize and, and plan what type of fueling strategy you want to take on board to really get the, yeah, the, the result that you're looking for. Yeah. And, and it's something, again, I think we should reiterate here. It's, and my background is definitely more on the health side of things, but, but from performance, um, obviously I'm, I'm interested in that element as well. And, increasingly when you when you talk to the guys that are involved with uh, elite athletes we're not talking about always training in the fasted state or always training with carbohydrate but instead i think it, it's thinking about well what do i need to fuel this exercise session is this going to be a long exercise session where i need to be thinking about carbohydrate or is this a um a, an easy moderate intensity ride where um, perhaps I don't need to take on as much fuel because I can uh, increase some of these adaptations from performing the session fasted. Um, and, um, and again, also thinking about energy balance. So you need to be thinking about this holistic picture rather than um, black and white, always perform exercise in the fasted state. I think there's definitely a time and place to it. And, and this kind of moderate intensity uh, running cycling is again where, where we're talking about with this. Real sweet spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome and, and rob you know if we look at sort of the evolution of research in this area what what are some areas that you think in the next five or ten years will be uh you know on the cutting edge or areas that we might find some some more gains yeah it's a 
I think it's a really exciting area to be involved in and kind of we hinted at at the start like we, we're very good at looking at exercise especially when it comes to health we're very look at, good at looking at nutrition but these interactions are so exciting and I think it um, it could help help us like we, we said get the bigger bang for a buck which which in today's climate I think we're um, is where it is and in terms of next steps so um, for various reasons, we we conducted our our research in in men. Uh, I think there's some um, um, work that needs to be done to to, um, to repeat that in women. I think w we talked about when we we're talking about the adaptations that we think it's to do with increased fat burning. And what I would say is that uh, that the the sex really you get the same effect um, where with men or women perform the exercise in, in a fasted or a carbohydrate fed state, you'll get increased fat burning uh, irrespective of, of sex. But it's it's one very easy question that could be answered. Um, I think then we can start getting in into some of the um, nuances, like um, is there a minimal number of sessions that need to be performed fasted? Um, what about changing the meal composition? If you uh, say you 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 really want to perform some exercise fasted, but your job doesn't allow you to exercise in the morning, perhaps you could skip lunch or have a a low carbohydrate lunch uh, and perform your exercise before dinner so you're still um uh, performing your your exercise in, in a um without ha having a, a large dose of carbohydrate beforehand so lots of questions to be asked around there and 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 i know there's also some really nice research going on um around the the timing of exercise throughout the day so brendan gabriel and, and julian zarith uh, are doing some nice work around um timing of exercise uh, across the day and I, I think that 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 that's also kind of um a, an exciting area to tap into now absolutely it's great for people to know that um they're not uh, there's not, not necessarily one better time or maybe we'll find out that there is one better time but as you <laughs> mentioned with timing of meals you know if lunch you know if you want to train after lunch then there's strategies where we can start to alter carbohydrate availability at lunch to then facilitate some of those gains and so you know we can work around client schedules and you know, have that's work, it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, working in men's health for the last 20 years, I mean, I think it's a big one for definitely for men in particular to be able to try to fit it into their schedule. Cause unfortunately if it doesn't, then they're going to adopt strategies that maybe we don't want them doing. And so practicality is a big part of that. And it's uh, tremendous to see all the, all the great work that you've done. And if people want to stay connected with you, Rob, and, and keep up with your, your work, you know, where can they uh, best keep in touch with you? Yeah, so um, on Twitter it's r um, uh, dash Edinburgh ninety three. Um, my university email address is r m Edinburgh at bath uk, and I'm happy to answer any questions that um, have come about from the talk. Um, and yeah, uh, in terms of kind of summing up what we've said, I think that the key message to to leave on um, is. Um, if we're, when we're talking about health like any diet or exercise routine the main determinant of long-term benefits is, is is persistence so find a routine that work and and stick at it but if you can go in the morning it, it, you might be getting some additional benefits from exercise um and it's also a great time to be out and about um it's uh yeah it's normally quite quiet which is probably quite beneficial in our current climate um and uh yeah it's the morning is a, is a great time um and, and why not if you're going to get a bigger bang for your buck why not exactly i think that's a great you know two great points there especially around sticking it out because i think everybody wants everybody wants all the success in the first four or eight weeks and so sticking it out is a is a great 
point to encourage that compliance factor being a great predictor of success. And hey, first thing in the morning, like you said, bigger bang for your buck. Most people will want to take that up, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's um, I, I think when it comes to weight loss and um, when it comes to improving your health, and even when it comes to exercise performance, it's quite often it's, it's a marathon and not a sprint. Um, and and um, it's finding something that works for you. Um, and if, it's, if that's diet, if that's um, an exercise routine, something you can stick at. Um, and that that should be the key message. But the research we're, we're doing at Bath really does seem to suggest that the, the meal timing is going to play an important role. Um, and if you can at least do some of the sessions uh, in the fasted state, you, you might expect to see some in- increased health benefits from that. Tremendous. Tremendous, Rob. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on. No worries at all. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you enjoyed the content, please share with friends and colleagues and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite platform so you don't miss any of the expert insights. Finally, a special announcement. The Peak Online course will launch this fall. If you're a coach, strength coach, trainer, practitioner, or nutritionist out there looking to enhance your performance nutrition skills, then head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org for our pre-sale list to be the first to hear about when the Peak Online course will drop and, of course, take advantage of the early bird discounts. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.